The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, we have been uh, working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and that journey now takes us to the next passage, Acts 4.32 through chapter 5.11. And let's pray for God's blessing here before we go any further. Lord, as we think about your word and what we're doing right now of gathering together around your word, Lord, we, we see how relevant the words of that psalm are. Lord, we wait for you. Lord, our eyes are on you to show up, to move, to work in our lives through this text of scripture. Lord, we understand that in order to really grasp this text, in order to see the significance of this text and everything you wanna show us through this text, that we need the same spirit who originally inspired the text to be written to be at work in our hearts. So please, Holy Spirit, have your way with each of us. Open our eyes. Move in our hearts. Show us, God, everything you want us to see through this passage from Acts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people are uh, different in many ways. But one thing that just about everyone has in common is that we're all repulsed by hypocrisy. Nobody appreciates hypocritical behavior. I'm reminded of the situation not all that long ago when many politicians enacted certain COVID regulations, but then broke their own rules, right? Going to fancy restaurants without a mask and uh, getting their hair done indoors without a mask and having these large crowded parties in their houses unmasked. So clearly their approach to their own regulations was, as they say, rules for thee, but not for me. And not surprisingly, that made a lot of people very upset. And of course, we would do well to remember that there's plenty of hypocrisy on the other side of the political aisle as well. And unfortunately, it's in addition, even an issue within many churches. That's one of the main reasons many non-Christians give for why they're not interested in church, right? I can't even count the number of times that someone has said to me that they have no interest in church or in Christianity because there are so many of those who profess to be Christians but are living a hypocritical life. People can't stand hypocrisy. And if there's one thing our main passage in Acts shows us, it is that God can't stand it either. He can't stand people who say one thing and do another. Not only that, but he wants to guard the church from such people. Another way to say it, and this is the main idea of this passage, is that God's passionate about the purity of the church. God's passionate about the purity of his church. 
And in a few moments, we're going to see just how passionate he is. But first, we read in Acts 4, 32 through 37, about how well things were going in the church. In fact, it's amazing to read about how these early Christians were living and interacting with one another. Look what it says. Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field and that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So things were going great at this church. And verse 32 tells us that they were unified, being of one heart and soul. And verse 33 records that with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And not only that, but perhaps the most distinctive feature that's brought out in this passage is the radical generosity that these early Christians exhibited. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, verse 32 tells us. And the result, as we see in verse 34, was that there was not a needy person among them. And I believe this radical generosity says a lot about the hearts of these early Christians. You see, there's this invisible cord that runs from a person's heart all the way down here to their wallet. All right? That's the way it works. The two are inseparably connected. The way we steward the money God has entrusted us with is one of the most reliable indicators about the true condition of our hearts and about what our true priorities are. Now, people can say all kinds of things about their devotion to Jesus that sound really good, but one of the truest measures of our devotion is our level of generosity. Generosity shows that our treasure is in heaven, that we care about others, that we're trusting God to provide for our earthly needs, and ultimately, that we understand God's generosity toward us in the gospel. So the generosity of these early Christians speaks volumes about their character and about the grace of God that was at work within them. Verse 33 says it well when it states that great grace was upon them all. And yet, as we're going to see, even the best church will still have some flaws. Also, Satan's never far away. Even when things seem like they're going extremely well, you can count on the fact that Satan is hard at work figuring out 
how he can undermine and sabotage what's happening. In fact, I would say the better things are going in the church, the harder Satan works to put a stop to it. And as we look at the narrative of Acts so far, we see earlier in chapter 4 that Satan first tried to oppose the spread of the gospel through external persecution. But that didn't work very well, and so now he tries a different tactic, weakening the church from within. Look with me at Acts 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, gee, I wonder how long their worship service was, right? But after three hours later into the worship service, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So what in the world is going on here? Well, Ananias and Sapphira tried to appear more spiritual and more generous than they really were. While claiming to give the full amount of money they had received for the field, they actually kept back a portion of it for themselves. So understand that their sin wasn't that they kept back some of the money, but rather that they lied about what they were giving. They could have just sold the land and kept back a a portion of it and said to Peter, hey, Peter, we've sold this field and and we'd like to donate most of the money to the church and we're just going to keep back this portion for ourselves, right? That would have been totally fine. Yet that's not what Ananias and Sapphira do here in Acts 5. Instead, they lied to make themselves look good in the eyes of the rest of the church. That was their sin. Hypocrisy. And in lying to the church, verse 3 says, that they were actually lying to the Holy Spirit. And so, God struck them dead. And it's at this point that it's very natural for us to wonder Why would God inflict such a severe judgment on them? I mean, it sounds kind of harsh at first glance, doesn't it? So why would God do that? Well, one thing we need to remember here is that all sin is worthy 
of severe judgment. It's a serious thing to rebel against a holy and righteous God. And the reason why we often don't understand the seriousness of sin is because we don't understand the holiness of God. Right? God is unimaginably, indescribably holy and loathes all sin. And so what happens to Ananias and Sapphira here in Acts 5 is actually what should happen to each one of us if we really got what our sins deserved. And that's one reason this passage is in the Bible. It's here as a warning to us. See, our tendency is to get comfortable with our sin. You know, kind of like a, a farm animal, perhaps. Uh, those of you who have visited a, a farm, uh, you understand that sometimes those, those animals can, I mean, they can get to smelling pretty ripe, right? And, of course, the animals themselves, they don't know that, right? They're, they're not aware of how bad they smell. They think they smell normal. And that's the way we tend to view our sin, right? We tend to view it as less than what it is and, and get comfortable with it and forget that our sin is unimaginably offensive to a holy God. Just like an animal's stench, especially on a farm, is, is unimaginably is offensive to us. Our sin is offensive to God in a way that we just can't comprehend. And yet, as we try to understand why God brings such severe judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, it's not enough to simply say that God takes sin seriously. Because there are many sins recorded in the Bible, and yet how often does God respond the way he does here? By striking people dead. I can think of a few other instances, but usually that's not the way God responds with such immediate judgment. And yet he does that here in Acts 5, doesn't he? Why? Well, you have to understand that this was a critical time in the life of the church. Uh, the Christian community was in its early stages at this point and was therefore very vulnerable. So if this sin wasn't dealt with swiftly and decisively, it could have significant consequences. I don't think it would be a, an overstatement to say that the future of the church was at stake here. And so we see God acting in a decisive way to guard the purity of the church. As stated in our main idea, God is passionate about the purity of his church. In other words, he's passionate about the church being free from anything that might contaminate it, such as unrepentant sin or hypocrisy. So that's what I mean by purity. And God acts in a decisive way here to guard that purity. And here's why the, the purity of the church is so important and why God takes such extreme measures to guard it. Two reasons. First, the purity of the church is an essential element of our witness. 
And this is something that's just as true today as it's ever been. And perhaps even more true. Because the reality is that people are tired of fake things. You know, we encounter so many fake things throughout the course of just an ordinary day. It's just ridiculous, right? Advertisements making exaggerated claims and social media posts that seem to to be intended to project a, a false image of someone's life. And, you know, even news articles written with a specific agenda in mind. And we're swimming in so much fakeness. And people are tired of it. People are tired of fake things. And so there's nothing that'll destroy our Christian witness faster than others observing fakeness. Or to be more specific, hypocrisy in the church. As I mentioned at the beginning, just about everybody has this one thing in common, at least, that there is a universal distaste for hypocrisy. You know, several years ago, before Becky and I started this church, I was working as a hospice chaplain, and one of my coworkers named Therese came up to me and paid me a, a very meaningful compliment. Now, Therese was a very matter-of-fact kind of person. Um, you didn't really have to wonder what she was thinking. She would just tell you what she thought about stuff. And uh, my impression from working with her for several years is that she was probably not a Christian and you know, not really hostile to, to Christianity necessarily, but she just really didn't care that much about it. And yet one day, Therese came up to me and paid me a compliment that was so meaningful to me that I still remember it to this day, seven or eight years later. She said, in her usual matter-of-fact way, you know, I like you because you're buying what you're selling. I like you because you're buying what you're selling. And now my motive in sharing that isn't to boast or to toot my own horn. Uh, The more anyone gets to know me, they they know. Uh, they, They see how flawed I am in many ways. And yet I believe Teresa's compliment is an important reminder for all of us of how critical it is for us to live out what we say we believe. Guys, we can have a real impact even on people who might even have a negative view generally of Christians and Christianity if we'll simply live out what we say we believe. In fact, I'll even go so far as to say that the only way most of the people around us will ever give serious consideration to the teachings of Jesus is if they see evidence of those teachings making a difference in our lives. So that's why the purity of the church is so important. That's why it's so important for the church to be free from unrepentant sin and hypocrisy. The impact that we as a church have on the people around us depends on. 
Also, the second reason why the purity of the church is so important, in addition to it being essential in our witness, is because it brings glory to God. The purity of the church in itself, even apart from any evangelistic benefits, brings glory to God. See, one of God's central desires for his people is for us to be transformed into his image and to reflect his character. Just like the moon shines not with its own light, but with the light of the sun, God wants us to shine with his light. He wants us and the way we live our lives to reflect who he is. You might say that God saved us so that we could be trophies of his grace. He wants everything about us to put his grace on full display. And he's passionate about that. He's passionate about making us into the kind of people who display the glories of his grace. I love the way Paul says it in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. He writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's the reason? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So understand the metaphor here, right? Jesus is like the groom and the church is like the bride. And the reason Jesus died on the cross was to sanctify and to cleanse the church so that one day, he could present the church to himself as a bride in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, Jesus endured the penalty for our sins on the cross, not just so that we could be forgiven of our sins, though that's also very true, but also so that we could be cleansed of sin in every way, including the sins in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus is passionate about that. He desires a pure bride. You know, in ancient Jewish culture, it was scandalous to marry a bride who had been defiled. It was shameful. No respectable man who wanted to remain respectable in the eyes of the community would ever accept a bride who had been sexually immoral prior to marriage. Uh, purity was essential. And the tragic reality of our situation is that you and I, in our natural condition, are anything but pure. We've all been defiled by sin. All kinds of different sins, many times over. But here's the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus loved us so much that even though we've all been defiled by sin many times over, Jesus didn't cast us aside the way a, a man in that culture would almost always do with a defiled bride. But instead, he finds a way to cleanse us, 
Now, obviously, in ancient culture, that wouldn't really be possible. But in this case, spiritually speaking, it is possible. And yet, it requires the unthinkable. That Jesus, in the words of verse 25, give himself up for his bride in his death on the cross. And the result is that when that wedding day comes in the future, Jesus can present the church to himself as a bride who's undefiled, a bride who's been cleansed and sanctified. That's how profound his love is for us. And he's determined to make sure that happens. He's determined to make sure that the church makes it to heaven as the pure bride that he desires her to be. And when there's significant sin in the church here on earth, like we see with Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts 5, it taints the purity of the church and, and therefore has to be dealt with in an appropriate way. So God's passionate about the purity of the church for those two reasons. Number one, it's an essential element of our witness. And number two, the church's purity brings glory to God. And let's not forget that we have an important role in all of this as well. Now sometimes, like with Ananias and Sapphira here in Acts 5, God directly intervenes in order to guard the church's purity. But most of the time, God expects us to act in a very intentional way to guard the church's purity. And don't worry, it doesn't involve killing anybody. Okay, we're not doing anything back in the parking lot after church. But he does expect us to act in an intentional way to guard the church's purity. The phrase that's historically been used for this is church discipline. Church discipline is the process of removing someone from church membership who insists on living in unrepentant sin. And I wish we had more time for me to explain all this, but the process is laid out pretty clearly in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is an outsider. And so this is right here, the, the process that our church follows. If any church member, right? So we're not just talking about anybody who attends our Sunday gatherings, but we're actually talking about official church members. So if any church member insists on living in sin without making any effort to repent, if that happens, we first bring the matter to the person's attention privately, as Jesus instructs us to do. And then, if they don't listen, we, that, that member takes one or two other members to go and talk to the person. And then if the person doesn't listen to that, then we have a members meeting and we explain the situation to the members, uh, the, all the members of the church so that the whole church 
can now pursue the person. And if the person refuses to listen even to the church, then we are forced as a last resort to remove that offending member from church membership. And that might sound like a rather harsh thing to do. And it is a a rather severe thing, but it's also a very loving thing. Because the whole point of this process is to help the person see that they are on a path that leads to destruction and to persuade them to get off of that path and and to repent and to start following the teachings of Jesus once again. Look very briefly with me at James 5, 19 and 20. James writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So these verses show us that it's a very loving thing for us to pursue a fellow professing Christian who's wandering off into sin. Because, as we see here, sin brings death. You know, the reason why church discipline doesn't make any sense to most people is because they don't really believe this. They don't really believe that sin brings death. Instead, they view sin the way most of us might view a minor traffic violation, such as coming to a rolling stop at a stop sign. If someone comes to a rolling stop at a stop sign, it's technically illegal, but we understand it's probably not going to really hurt anybody. And that's the way a lot of people view sin. They view it as one of those things that might technically be wrong, but not really harmful. Yet the Bible says something much different. It says that sin brings death. It brings misery. It brings ruin. It brings destruction, both in this life and in eternity. And so the most loving thing that we as a church can do for those who are wandering off into sin is to pursue them and try to persuade them to turn back, even if that involves the very last resort of us removing them from membership. Because even after we remove someone from membership, our hope is still, even then, that they would repent so that we can restore them to membership once again. That's the whole point. (laughs) Removing someone from membership is our final desperate plea to them to repent and to save themselves from the misery and the destruction that sin brings. Also, this process of church discipline is a critical part of us guarding the purity of the church. That's what all of this ultimately comes back to, the purity 
of the church. Even though we understand that the church will never be completely pure, this side of heaven, since we all still continue to battle sin in our lives, we can at least be pure in the sense that we don't tolerate unrepentant sin among church members. And brothers and sisters, as we see you know, back in our main passage of Acts 5, God is passionate of how the purity of his church. And he calls us to be passionate about the purity of the church as well. In addition, what happens to Ananias and Sapphira here in Acts 5 is, is something that it should cause us to take a long, hard look at ourselves. Is there hypocrisy in our own lives. Listen to these words from the 19th century theologian J.C. Ryle. I've been reading him a lot lately, as you can probably tell. He writes this, Nothing darkens the eyes of the mind so much and deadens the conscience so surely as an allowed sin. It may be a little one, but it is not any less dangerous. A small leak will sink a great ship. A small spark will kindle a great fire. And a little allowed sin, in like manner, will ruin an immortal soul. There is nothing finer than the point of a needle. But when it has made a hole... It draws all the thread after it. You see what he's saying there? Even a supposedly small sin will bring unimaginable ruin in your life and in your relationship with God. And that's because sin never stays small, does it? No, it always grows. It's like that needle. Right? It makes that little small hole. Can't even see the hole, but once the needle goes through, it draws all the, the string after it. Sin will always take you farther than you ever thought you would go and make you pay more than you ever thought you would pay. Another theologian named Jeremy Taylor describes the natural process and the progression of sin in our lives. Remember how I said that sin leads us down a path that will one day ultimately lead to destruction? Well, this is what that looks like in the words of Jeremy Taylor. First, sin startles a person. Then, it becomes pleasing. Then, easy. Then, delightful. Then frequent, then habitual, then a way of life. Then the man feels no guilt, then is obstinate, then resolves never to repent, and then he is damned. Sin brings death. 
So I can't encourage you enough to let the words in, in, in this passage of Acts 5 cause you to examine yourself. Are you living a life of hypocrisy? Are you professing to be a Christian while at the same time tolerating secret sin in your life? I mean, if Acts 5 shows us anything, it shows us that there's no such thing as a sin that's truly secret. <laughs> no such thing as sin that's hidden from the eyes of God. Nobody here might know about it. But God knows about it. And it's vile in his eyes. And yet, God gives us the glorious promise of 1 John 1 9. One of the most precious verses in the entire Bible. It states if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And of course, that cleansing and that forgiveness are possible because Jesus already endured the penalty for our sins in his death on the cross. He suffered the punishment that our sins deserved and then three days later resurrected from the dead so that he now stands ready to save Everybody who will look to him to do that. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of a situation you might be in right now. If you will simply embrace Jesus for who he is and cry out to him for rescue, then you also can experience for yourself the love and compassion Jesus has for sinners like you and me.